So this is the fifth episode of the Next Gen Cast. Hopefully by now you've heard who we are and what we're about. But if you haven't, thank you for choosing to join us firstly. And what we're trying to do here is bring you some of the interviews that we'd normally be having at our face-to-face Next Generation GP events. Next Gen is all about getting behind the titles, to the stories and the advice that leaders have to share with us in the hope that whatever we're doing right now, they might be able to provide a bit of inspiration. So if you haven't had time to listen to our first few episodes, we've had Sir David Haslam, uh, Samantha Jones, Baroness Dido Harding and Sir Bruce Keogh. And if you've taken the time to tweet us or email us with your kind comments about those episodes, thank you so much. Um, I'm really glad that you've enjoyed listening to them as much as I have doing them. So that Hall of Fame continues today with our fifth episode. And today we have a great friend and role model of mine, Bob Kleber. So Bob's a consultant paediatrician and he's also Director of Strategy, Research and Innovation, leading a programme to create this culture of continuous improvement across Imperial NHS Trust. I'm so happy that we have Bob on the podcast because ever since I worked with him very briefly when I was in SHO in about 2014, I was just totally infected by his energy and his optimism and He just has this way of leaving you feeling about two feet taller, even after you've just had a corridor conversation with him. And actually, he was the first leader I worked for who really made me think about how I treat the people around me. So enough from me. I mean, this episode's in two parts, because frankly, I just really struggled to cut out any of his wisdom. So here's part one. I really hope you enjoy it. And part two will follow in about a week's time. Bob, it's a real pleasure to speak to you today. Thank you so much for making time for this. Um, I've been looking forward to this conversation for several weeks because I always love chatting to you and I learn a lot and I come away energised. So thank you so much. Well, listen, the, the, the feeling is very mutual and uh, it's an absolute, absolute privilege. I feel re- really grateful to be asked and I think it'll, it's you know, great fun for me to just sit and talk uh, to a, a very dear friend and somebody who I think the world of. So uh, hopefully it'll be vague and vaguely interesting to other people. But if not, we'll just have a lovely chat. So. <laughs> yeah. um, so let's just start with how you are. Um, the first few people we've had on the podcast are not actually been actively practicing clinicians. So they've started off by talking about what it's been like to move indoors and to lead remotely. And that's probably the opposite of what's happened for you. So how are you? Thanks for what a lovely, a lovely question. Yeah, I'm fine. Um, I'm I'm very well, and um, I'm I'm definitely pretty tired. Uh, and for somebody who sort of focuses on, you know, generally sort of energy and optimism and uh, being sort of key traits um, and key things that are important for me, it's been a extraordinary three months. And um, I've got involved in a whole load of different things. So I'm a paediatrician, as you know, by background. I've done really relatively little paediatrics. Um, a little bit of uh, remote clinical work related to connecting care for children, and we'll maybe touch on that a bit later. Um, my share of being on call, and one of the things that has been interesting and, and has frightened us as paediatricians is, in a way, how quiet and calm the on calls have been. You know, the message to uh, families, to parents, to young people has been stay at home. And um, that's been a sensible message in lots of ways in terms of COVID and lockdown, but it's been a worrying message in terms of 
late presentations. And so we've had small numbers of children in, but some really quite sick kids. But one of the things that our team did very early, so both our intensive care team and my general paediatric lot, was said, look, we think we can do something to help offer and support on the adult side. So our paediatric intensive care unit transformed themselves into an adult intensive care unit. Really extraordinary vision and courage to do that. And then our um, paediatric day case unit, so you'll remember Westway as the, the children's day case unit, we turned it into an adult COVID ward. I guess that reminded me that really medicine and care is about compassion. It's about kindness. So I definitely felt quite apprehensive. 21 years since I've looked after adults, but actually it was a really um, very humbling experience and our adult colleagues across the trust were very supportive. So that's been my clinical work. My normal day job as an executive member of the team at Imperial is around strategy, research, innovation, improvement. And um, in a way, quite a lot of that got parked by really picking up operational leadership. And I guess sort of operational staff, clinical leadership about making um, big decisions quickly. The, the, the sort of storytelling I'd say about this is in January, none of us had even heard of this, you know, coronavirus, this COVID story. And then in, by, you know, March time, we very much heard of it. We knew absolutely nothing about it. And I can't think of any other example around in my career. I mean, there's plenty of times where I don't know anything about anything, but other people do, thankfully. Uh, we really didn't know what to do, what was going on. We had to rapidly learn. And I guess a big part of my career and things I'm interested in is how people learn. So the rapid learning of this has been extraordinary and I think it's worth paying some real attention to. So um, it's been incredibly busy and full, I'd say, for the first six or seven weeks. It ended up being seven days a week, just, you know, so maybe sort of 50 odd days of really pretty much working every day, working long days. And it's been really challenging. Um, It's been incredibly rewarding to do something that has such clarity of mission um, ultimately, to work with people. This is, you know, cares, as you've heard me say many times, is all about people. And um, this has really been a story of extraordinary people and real privilege to be able to, to spend so much time and learn from people. And actually, lots of my friends and colleagues who aren't doctors or don't work in hospital, who've been working from home or trying to look after their families, and, and I think have lost a real sense of purpose in recent weeks. I think that's been incredibly difficult for them. And I think in some ways, although we've had a very hard time of it and worked incredibly hard, the privilege of being able to do something with such purpose is just worth reflecting on um, as well. So that's a little bit of a download of how I am. The bottom line is I, I, I'm fine, but uh, it's been it's been quite an extraordinary experience. I can't imagine those those working. I remember those paediatric areas you mentioned. I just literally cannot imagine them being transformed into adult. Um, so you you I know that you worked during the Grenville disaster as well. So that was perhaps another crisis. But if you look back over the last few weeks, what do you think you've learned about leading through a crisis that might be helpful for other people to hear? Yeah, thank you. Well, I think in a funny way, um, so the first bit of my answer would be, in lots of ways, nothing changes about the way you need to behave. And I think that's part of the point about focusing leadership about being how you behave I guess a bit of my my sort of leadership mantra not not a mantra or sort of way of explaining it of rationalize it in my head would be the role is really as simple as one thing 
And that is about how do you create an environment in which other people can thrive? So if you think of it through that frame, that how do I do things as a, as a leader, whether I recognize myself as a leader or, or not, how do I do things that are going to really allow other people around me to thrive? That might be by being encouraging. That might be by being really clear about what the objective is and the purpose. That might be by checking with them. That might be helping unblock things. And you can sort of see how that, that, all, that clarity of what the role is. So I, I definitely over the years have got clearer and clearer and clearer in my head that there's a crucial part of leadership is, is about environment. It's about creating an environment where people feel psychologically safe, where they feel supported. And I guess if your starting point is that people are wonderful, they want to do the very best thing, they, uh, they, don't, they sometimes don't quite know how, or they might be a bit confused or might be put off by something, but they ultimately want to do the right thing. They want to do, that's why people go into healthcare. We've got wonderful people who want to do the right thing. If we focus on creating the right environment for them to succeed, the permission, the support, uh, then we're really going places. So I think in lots of ways that doesn't change. So one of the things that happens when you have a major incident is this sort of talk of command and control. Command and control does not mean you have to suddenly become very difficult in all of your behaviours. There's still, you know, the behaviours around kindness, the behaviours around being an enabler for others to succeed, arguably are even more important. So we definitely moved into a, a, a different mode of decision making. We stripped out a lot of the stuff that you've previously heard me describe as treacle, uh, the complicated governance processes we put around things that I'm not sure always add value. In fact, quite often don't add enough value. So we, we sort of went back to the basics of it, of being clear about what you want to achieve and then trying to create the, the right conditions for that to happen. But certainly as an individual, I, I sort of very strongly hold the view that one's got to absolutely stick to your, your authenticity about who you are and about um, you know, what you stand for. And you need to really sort of stand up for that. So I'd say that crisis doesn't necessarily change things quite as much as perhaps sometimes gets described. Um, you, the pace of it may well change. Um, but actually those values that you stand for and that you've learned over the years and and describe who you are as a person uh, need to shine through in, in everything you do. Hmm. That's a really interesting way of looking at it, actually. Um, and I love your definition of leadership there, of creating an environment where people will thrive. I mean, you have this beautifully kind of relentless focus on people around you and bringing out the potential of people around you that I've observed ever since I've known you. Where has that come from? Can you reflect on maybe when you first started out in your career or as a leader? I mean, nature probably had a huge part to play, but what were the nurture influences? Yeah. Well, so my lovely dad, you know, I'm very um, you know, privileged of a really lovely family uh, upbringing and medical parents. Um, and my dad in particular, so, you know, he was a, a consultant uh, the wonderful thing that he really taught me was definitely about people. So he had this great sense of um, uh, not really caring two hoots about where somebody came from, uh, who they were, what their role was, to what extent they'd been educated or not, and just really taking people on face value. And so I might, one of my early memories of going to see him in a hospital type setting was how wonderful he was with the portals and the, the ward clerk and, and always, always really treating patients as equals. And uh, 
always interested in people. He was a dermatologist and, you know, we always used to tease him. He, he, he'd have his same patients for 30, 40 years because none of them ever got any better. They were sort of, you know, but they were there managing a chronic disease and he was there on that journey with them. So I definitely found that that flattened hierarchy bit. I think sort of I then remember sort of being in medical school and meeting some of these sort of ridiculous hierarchies and quite frankly, sort of bullying approaches that would happen from, you know, the, the professor or the doctor or whoever. And I just had zero tolerance for that. And for whatever reason, my dad, the dad, dad's sort of influence on me, of you know, somebody shouting at me saying they'd ruin my career or something. I mean, you know, but I could just see through that from a young, much younger age than I think a lot of people do. And that's just nonsense. I remember looking at I'm miles more, if I were I'm miles more likely to ruin your career. So if I was a student put in a complaint that the professor was bullying me, a big, big trouble. So there was something about my upbringing that gave me that sort of confidence to stand up for what was right. And I guess some sort of skills and focus on, on how to explain things and communicate things so that you could challenge that. And I don't know, maybe, I mean, you know, and I'm sure some things you know, race and uh, inclusion is a hugely important thing for us. Think about, you know, six foot three white male undoubtedly would have helped in that. And, and it shouldn't. And we need to think about some of that stuff. So, um, but that was the sort of, I guess, where I was in the 90s. Um, um, but I remember having a bit of a feistiness about that, about standing up for stuff that was right and stuff that was uh, focused on fairness. And, and that absolutely, definitely part of who I am today around that stuff. I, my tolerance of those sorts of behaviours is is very very low. So I've you know real focus on uh, on how people behave, and I will call people up for that stuff, and you know not shout at them, but actually properly properly spend time and effort explaining things and playing things back and trying to build up insight in people because I think um, it's again it's not usually these behaviours are not around intention; they're around people's own issues and their own lack of confidence or their own you know got stuck in their own little world or they're not born out of evil they're born out of ignorance usually and I think um, I think a lot of these things you can you can tackle so I I think that that was really important for me um, uh, and definitely pretty early on so early on experiences I think count for a lot I mean as a paediatrician we know you know early years stuff it, it's crucial so I suspect they they started well beyond I can remember but I think the key thing is how you then keep building on and learning on these things. And, you know, some of your questions, we'll talk about mentors and people you meet come and influence uh, your thinking and they help, um, they help shape that. I have this sort of idea of um, life being sort of having a clear set of values and things you stand for. And then life's experiences come and sort of shape that and move that uh, as you go along. And the last three months have been an, an extraordinary example of that so so yeah it's quite deep I think it's stuff that's sort of been there quite a long time but you can nurture and move but it feels quite core it's sort of I guess the visual of a stick of rock you could find different bits of time or different bits of my life where where I think I think it was there and maybe you know you as you get older and a bit clearer in your mind that it becomes more paramount it's interesting everyone that you speak to in positions like yours if you ask about usually comes from somewhere or starts with someone yeah. I love finding out what that might be so thank that's you it's a great that. question um can we unpick something you actually talked about just there you mentioned dealing with difficult people the thing about you is if someone mentions Bob Kleber the first reaction you get is 
usually something along the lines of he's so nice he's such a lovely guy he's really friendly and that's absolutely true but I've always wondered how do you I mean how do you deal with people that you don't get on with that well or conflict as someone who is by default genuinely really nice how do you do that and um, thank you for the lovely feedback. Um, I, so the being, the being nice bit, I mean, kind bit is really, really important to me. And, you know, it's deeply how I feel. It's not, it's not an act, but it's, um, it requires um, being deliberate. And the converse of it is if, um, in a way, relating back to the stories that I, I told before, if people aren't, uh, you know, if there's, a diff- if there's an issue or there's something that needs to be dealt with, I'll, I'll deal with it. And I think in a way, I have real clarity of thought about that. Like in my head is the phrase, um, you know, you're only as good as the thing you're prepared to walk past. So um, I watch quite a lot of senior colleagues find conflict very, very difficult. And um, I definitely don't like it. I wouldn't go looking for it. But I'm also not prepared to walk past it at all. And I, and I, I'm quite steely about that. So, um, you know, nice feedback to you, Nish. You've obviously always been absolutely wonderful. I've never seen this side of you. No, no, no. no. But it, but I just, you know, th- there's an absolute serious uh, side. I remember somebody very, very many years ago talking about how uh, his, his phrase was, uh, it was a consultant in my very early days and again, he said, don't, you know, don't get confused about this. Healthcare is a very serious business. So I'm very interested in how use of humour and humility and self-deprecation and all sorts of things and and try and have lots of lovely conversations and laughter and sort of twinkles in the eye of uh, conversations with people and patients and families and, you know, the relational side. But it, it, what we're doing is a very, very serious business. And I think where people's behaviour steps out of line and, and part of me has a thing of if I can't stand up to them, how on earth can I expect other people who might be much more junior or have had less privilege, less education, English isn't their first time, take your pick. Yeah, I'm pretty feisty about that stuff. And this, the other bit is I really also clear, it really does not matter who it is. I don't, I really don't, I absolutely would take on anybody around that. Really anybody. Because as soon as you don't, how can I talk to you about what matters to me and, and you know, I guess a thread of authenticity around that that's the base of how I, I think life's important and you can get stuff done. If I start going, oh, well, I do it for these people, but oh, no, that one's a bit too difficult. And I just think that's intellectually bankrupt. You can't, you can't get to that stage. So I'm really, really clear. It really does not matter how senior, whoever they were, I would absolutely take people. Now, you've got to do that thoughtfully and there's, um, you've got to try and find your time and it requires great uh, great skill to do it you know how do you we've talked about this and you know give you an example how do you feed back to somebody who's been working all weekend uh, over the nights that um, there's been an issue around how they've communicated something or how they've done something and then they're there on Monday morning handover and they're about to be off for 10 days and they've just worked four nights and they're exhausted you know and you've got to go and do a ward round that that's quite a difficult conundrum when is the right moment? Do you wait till they're back from holiday? Do you try and grab them? Out? Well, there's no right, right answer. The right answer, I think, is be very, very thoughtful about it and, and uh, consider it. But, you, you know, you, you can't just let stuff go like that. So I think it's, not, it's actually not fair on the people whose behaviour isn't quite right because they'll just carry on being like that. 
And the, the only find the final bit of reassurance to tell people for their thinking, oh my God, you know, do I, you know, I sometimes walk past some of these things and I don't do this stuff. And I think to A, that's fine. That doesn't make you a bad person. And have I walked past some stuff that I afterwards thought, gosh, um, you know, I look back on now and think I could and should have acted. Undoubtedly I have. So uh, I think, you know, what one, I've got a clarity in my mind about how we've got to go about this. But the, the other bit to say is that almost always the, the resolution of the conflict, actually people will be intensely grateful to you for feeding back some sort of blind spot, for giving them a space to reflect, for listening to them. That maybe something terrible is happening in their life that uh, it allows them to talk about. So I think um, we owe it to, to the individual whose perhaps behaviour is you know, not up to scratch to give them the space and, and warmth and kindness and generosity to, to try and talk about things. So it has a steely side to it. But actually, usually the behaviour is underpinned by something troubling, troubling going on for that person. And um, it, so the, the kindness can run through that as well. Do you think that you have to get to a certain level of seniority to be able to do that to people above you, though? How do you manage no. up if you're, at, say, my level? Like the bottom no, of the you, <laughs> you do you, you do that all the time. If this is a human thing, this is a you know children can do this stuff beautifully, elegantly, um, arguably sometimes better than adults. Um, listen, you try having teenage teenage children in your house. We uh, you know joke at home and say you, the more senior you get, the less feedback you get, and then you realise at home, like with teenage children, it's not feedback; it's like constant commentary. It's uh, it's there the whole time. No, I think. I think it's one of the sort of myths we somewhat perpetuate. Look, I, of course I understand how the sort of uh, both real and perceived hierarchies that are in healthcare um, are a real problem to that. And I touched on psychological safety earlier and how you try and actively create safe environments um, for people to really talk. So, of course, they're real. And I, re- I really deeply understand that. But I think we've got to work very proactively to sort of kill off that myth. I mean, the programmes around reverse mentoring would be a really good example. Um, but I think that sort of uh, very deliberate intervention uh, can, can make a real difference on culture because other people can start to see that. And you can do informal. You know, you've done plenty of informal reverse mentoring for me over the years. Um, and I think that's really important. Um, so I think that stuff gets overplayed. And actually, I think most senior people are really curious and reaching out to try and learn more from people more junior to them. I think often they're not very good at asking for it. They find it they're in less, they have less opportunities to, they're not sat in a mess and those sort of informal conversations. So I think there's something about um, uh, recognising that sometimes senior people find that really hard to ask for feedback, to ask for input. Um, So Bob, I want to change tack a little bit and talk about some of the things that you've achieved as I said, you're the first practicing clinician that we've had on this and um, you've done some amazing things to change the system around you alongside your clinical career. You mentioned connecting care for children. So maybe let's start there. Now, I had the pleasure of working alongside you just a little bit when I was rotating through paediatrics and I got to experience a bit of what you were doing. And it was it was just so inspiring, actually. And it really showed me what can be achieved when clinicians lead change. So I think you can do a better job of explaining what it is than I can. So maybe we'll start there. So what, what, tell us about Connecting Care for Children. Okay. 
So it's lovely. You're, you're so, yeah, I, I sort of recognise it as just sort of, you know, just doing the right thing, really. But let me give it a little bit more, tiny bit more flourish for people listening. Around. So Connecting Care for Children was really um, uh, not a structured programme, but was actually about a way of working. And we went into it um, essentially what had been happening. So this is, I guess, 2012, 13 um, that sort of time. And along with a just extraordinary colleague of mine, uh, Mando Watson, um, who's a general paediatric colleague and, and great friend, she and I and others around us were just becoming increasingly restless that this, the way we were delivering care just didn't really add up. Um, and I'm going to spare you. I mean, you know, I've done too many, too many podcasts in this where I've like rants about the nonsense that's outpatients. Although there's, a, there's an extraordinary irony, isn't it, that I've sort of spent like a decade telling everyone what a load of rubbish outpatients is and trying to abolish it. And you're, you're putting me out here as some, you know, some genius around change. And ultimately, I've basically completely failed around outpatients. And then COVID's come along and it's uh, done my work for me and, <laughs> and more. So, uh, yes, I'm not sure I, I achieved nearly as much as, uh, as I might have done. So connecting care for children, thinking about how do we integrate care more, recognising that that where harm was happening, where sadness was happening, where patient and family experience was poor, was often in the gaps between different care providers. And, and we, so we sort of went into this sort of picking up a series of projects that we've been involved in and saying, could we try and wrap it all together into a, into a way of thinking, a way of working, into a set of design principles? And we went into this, and this was in the very early days of integrated care. We thought this is an integrated care project. We realised then we were integrating absolutely nothing at all, but actually the behaviour was connecting. It was all about trying to make connections and join things up. And I guess if you recognise that the problem was people were falling into gaps, you start connecting stuff up and that happens much less. So this was about a few activities that we had control over. So I guess the massive leadership lesson for me and you and anybody um, who's still listening and hasn't fallen asleep is that you have great influence about one big thing and that's about how you behave and no matter how little you are or junior you are or you know end of your career wherever you are whatever you do you've got really significant influence about how you behave and how you behave to others and I think you, you know that the only bit of credit really Mando and I and others uh, deserve around that was really properly recognizing that and that was at a time when the incentives were very bizarrely not to do that but I mean, people get very obsessed. So what do I mean by incentives? Well, the hospital was only paid if we sat in clinic and waited for a GP to write us a letter. A letter, this is, yeah. You know, we utterly ridiculous. It may be tight, but it was certainly received in the post. And then we would open the letter. And then like 10 weeks later, we'd go and see this patient. We'd usually take them out of school to come and see us. And then they'd see us. And well, all right, we tried very hard and did our best. And then you know what we're going to do? We're going to go and write a letter back to the GP. I mean, and as taxpayers, all of you guys listening are currently paying for this. Absolutely ridiculous. And that was the system we were in. And that was the system that, that really, uh, until COVID came along, was continued to be funded like that. What we said was, look, there's a much better way of using our time. So we started to set up hotlines. We started to spend time out with GP practices. We set up multidisciplinary team meetings. Um, over lunch so people could eat together and talk about patients and learn together 
And it started with GPs and health visitors and paediatricians. And then other people thought, this is quite fun. I might come along. We got dietitians along. And we realised there was a whole load of mental health issues would come up. So we got our colleagues from CAMS, the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service would come along. And essentially, the conversations are around how can we collectively use our collective our collective knowledge, our collective know-how, our collective connections, particularly locally, all the different services and the voluntary sector organisations that are around to come up with um, support and help and solutions for children, young people, and particularly families. And the key point is this is centred around general practice. So I guess Mando and I both very deeply believe and believe that um, general practice it needs to be right at the heart of our healthcare system in this country. And uh, the GPs who we have worked with, and it's now, you know, well over 100 different GPs who I've spent time with over the last few years, and seeing children together, talking about children together, and really focus on the GP practice as the, the sort of where the action's happening. It's the connecting vehicle. And it's really taught us a new way of working. It feels to me like the future, if we're going to be responsible together for looking after a population these are the sorts of uh, approaches to care that we need to have the leadership bit has been cutting through the nonsense about being very very clear about doing the right thing and the best way to know you're doing the right thing is to go and ask people and we started with children and young people and we said to them what are the things that really matter to you so uh, i guess uh, a real you know an amazing um, uh, inspiring mentor of mine who i've been very privileged to have got to know well over the years um, is an 800-fold uh, more impressive paediatrician than me, Don Berwick, who has this lovely thing and he says, if you just focus on need, you'll be fine. If you just focus on need, you'll be fine. What a brilliant, brilliant comment. And if you think about it, the healthcare system that we have over the last 10 years, certainly maybe more, has largely focused on demand, and capacity. So it's focused on all of the people turning up to A&E and it's focused on have we got enough hospitals and beds and GPs and GP practices. And I think we're barking up the wrong tree. We need to really understand what are the needs of our communities, what are the needs of our citizens. Uh, that will get us focused much more on health and well-being. And I, I think, you know, Don Berwick has it completely right. So I fully intend to spend as much of the next X decades uh, focused on uh, Don's very sensible advice. Um, it really felt like connecting care for children was kind of ahead of its time as well because we're seeing more models like that now. But I think particularly then when you were starting, I can't imagine how hard that was. You make it sound almost you know, relatively straightforward because it makes sense. But I bet you hit so many brick walls along the way. What kept yeah. you going? What kept you going? Well. <laughs> So I think there's a thing about preference. So definitely, um, I think there is something about understanding yourself as a leader about things that you, you know, almost where you're best. So I can carry on doing things, but I probably, if I look at my career and all the things I've done and haven't done, I'm probably at my best where I've given quite a blank sheet of paper. I like the, the setup, the design, the, the thinking about the framework, the parameters. Um, I mean... <laughs> Was it easy? No, I think it really was easy in lots of ways. It was easy in terms that it was very clear about what needed to be done. It was deeply painful in moments around trying to explain things to, you know, for example, conversations with some of our local commissioners who I really liked and were really lovely people. 
and deep down wanted the same thing as me to try and improve the health and well-being of their community. But you get into these ridiculous conversations where they would say things like, well, we're really worried about what you're doing because you might, um, you might generate some more need. Okay, well, Hank, isn't that the point that we're trying to find some of this unmet need? So the idea that you would... So there was a very reductionist approach to things. And I think, you know, we've got to look back on that 10 years. I'm quite strong about this um, the more I think. And I guess I'm sort of pretty mid-career. I've kicked around for 20-plus years and I, you know, very much hope I've got uh, something similar again. And I look back on the last 10 years and I think uh, we've focused on the wrong things. I really think... um, So let's just reflect on COVID for a minute. For the last three months, we've had extraordinary mission and purpose, and we touched on this at the beginning of the conversation. And if I look back over the last 10 years, what's been the mission and purpose of the NHS? I think it's been really confused. We've had far too many conversations about money. We got into massive arguments about the health reforms and the Lansley reforms and all the, you know, were they a good thing or the fragmentation or things. But fundamentally, we've had the tail wagging the dog. We've not talked about the things that most matter. We've not been talking about the things that really matter to our patients, to our citizens, to our local communities. We've not talked about, in a way, healthcare is beautifully clear. The mission and purpose of any of us who've gone in is so, so clear. And we fundamentally failed to talk about that enough and focus on it over the last decade. And I think that's a failure of leadership. Um, and we're all, you know, I've been a leader around the 10 years, we're, we're all in on that. And everyone who you've interviewed and will interview will also be in on it as well. We've really collectively failed to focus on the right thing. So there's a big opportunity for us going ahead. We've got to get back. And COVID, the reset bit on that, to me, gives us absolute clarity of purpose. And we need to not fall into the trap of going back to some of the old arguments and focusing on the wrong thing. You know, our mission is to help improve the health and well-being of our population, of our communities. And we need to point everything we can to that. And it's dead easy as a vision. You, you know, if I'm, you ask me to set up a company doing X or Y, I can't come up with such a good and clear vision. I mean, this is man on the moon stuff. And yet we fail to talk about it. So I'm, I'm not prepared to be a leader going forward who fails to talk about that stuff. We've got to keep people on mission on purpose. Are you hopeful that other people will be? Yeah, I'm. Point with you? No, I am. I, I am. I am hopeful. Um, I am hopeful, but I also think there's a steely edge to this stuff as well, and that may be part of where I am in my career. Is I'm not prepared. I genuinely, yeah, I genuinely look back on the last decade with some regret about that. Um, you know, so I, in one way, I answered your question of was it easy? Well, it, it was easy, but actually, it would have been so much easier had there being greater clarity of, of mission and purpose. And, and as I say, I really, really think we've got ourselves got senior leaders, and that's me included as well, so it's not me pointing the finger, but collectively we really have got that wrong. And, and I think part of it, I've made the most terrible, terrible politician because I'd be pulling U, U-turns all over the place, and I'd be arguing these are learning. But I think we've got to be honest with ourselves and say we've got that wrong, and we need to find a different direction. I think we could do with politicians like that at the moment but thank you for that message I think people listening will be really inspired by that and hopefully can join you on that mission. So that was part one of our fifth episode with Bob Claver. We covered quite a lot there about leading through a crisis and how corona's affected him 
a bit about where his conviction came from, his work on integrating care for children across London and a renewed focus at the end there on where senior leaders need to take the NHS now. For part two, we're going to focus much more about leadership behaviours. And Bob's going to share some of the advice that he's given me that I found absolutely transformative um, in terms of my leadership journey. If you subscribe to the podcast, we'll be the first to get that episode. In the meantime, do tweet us your comments at nextgp um, or send us an email at nextgenerationgp at gmail.com. See you next time.